0: You're listening to Artisan Hackers, the podcast dedicated to the communities building and using new digital tools of creation. We talk to programmers, artists, poets, musicians, bot makers, educators, students, and designers in an effort to critically look at both online art making and the history of technology and the internet. We're interested in where we've been and speculative ideas on the future. This episode is supported by Purchase College. I'm your host, Lee Tussman. This is the third and final show in a trio of episodes we're doing on artists working with bots and conversation agents. In episode eight, I spoke with artist Stephanie Dinkins on her projects, Conversations with Bina48 and Not the Only One. In episode nine, I talked with the artist Ryan Quo and his collaborator, Tommy Martinez on their work, Faith and Baby Faith. In today's episode, we're speaking with LA based artist, Emily Martinez. Emily's a first generation Cuban immigrant and refugee in their own words. They say they were raised by Miami and they've been living in Los Angeles since 2012, they've worked with a number of collaborators. Most recently with the artist, Ben Lurchin on a project they call Queer AI. Just a quick note, this episode acknowledges the existence of sex.
1: I'm a new media artist. I work in collaboration a lot. So I like to call myself a serial collaborator. And I am a firm believer in the tactical misuse of technology.
0: How did you get into working with technology like that?
1: I started building Twitter bots kind of randomly. I did a tutorial and I was like, kind of excited by it, putting something in public. Usually my My process for art making didn't have that interactive component to it. I would make videos and, you know, people watch them. It was like a one-way directional thing. So, um, yeah, I, I did this tutorial. I learned how to make a Twitter bot. I made a bunch of them. They were very simple. What is a Twitter bot? A Twitter bot is a bot that runs on Twitter and can respond to things that people say if somebody uses a certain hashtag or keyword the bot might retweet it, it might respond to the person. One of the, f- the first bots that I made that actually became a popular Twitter bot, its name was Meows, and the only thing it did was retweet the word singularity. And I gave Meows a persona, like the image was like one of these like lol cats. And its background, like the background photo, was a picture of Ray Kurzweil, who is, you know, famously the person who, like, has predicted the technological singularity, um, which is a point where, like, machine intelligence will supersede human intelligence, and we'll all, whatever, we'll all—I don't know what will happen after that. It's absurd, but people really love this guy. So there was an image of Ray with all these pills around him, and this bot that retweets this keyword. But then if you were to follow the bot, I also gave it an array of questions and another array of like canned responses. So people would enter into what they thought was a conversation with this chat bot. Part of what would happen is that they would try to figure out if the bot was an AI, which was kind of funny because it was a very dumb bot. It was fascinating just watching the way that like people were engaging with it, like they wanted to get something out of it they would try to you know they would try to mess with it like can i break this bot and there's again there's not much to break they were trying to also figure out like like what is it trying to do like what is its politics to me i was making this kind of trickster bot because there wasn't a clear sense of like what my position is or the bot's position in relationship to ray kurzwell is it really a fan of this stuff or is it is it mocking
0: you developed it as basically a subversive chat bot but you've also done a lot of market research with it, which is not something I've, I've thought of when I've thought of these kinds of chatbots to understand the, the, the niche futurist market
1: I should talk about like my day job, which is tech and marketing. There's this weird way that like these things have like blended into each other. I'll use techniques from marketing and my artwork and then vice versa that I do in art will somehow bleed into like this other work that has nothing to do with art. It's something that happens just like inherently. If you're anybody making work on the internet, I would argue when you start doing this stuff, you can put that lens on it. At the time I was doing another art practice, I was doing a lot of work around labor stuff, the sharing economy. I think accelerationism at that that moment was like trending, you know, people were writing a lot about like post-capitalist futures, whatever. So this bot was asking questions like, how do you feel about universal basic income? Do you like sharing? It would ask that question. And again, this is me, you know, thinking about the sharing economy and how all of this language has been used by like tech companies to promote something that's very extractive and exploitive but it's it has like a smiley face on it it's about quote sharing so there was just this this question that seems absurd to ask like do you like sharing oh at the time Trump was running for president so it would ask how do you feel about Donald Trump and you know, that, that has like a heavier, heavier weight now, Um, in that moment, it still felt like an absurd thing to ask. So yeah, that was, it was interesting to see which questions people engaged with. And if there was like a correlation between like, what was happening at the time, because a bot ran for almost two years, maybe more than no, I think a little less than two years. And, you know, depending on what was happening in the world economically, like was there some kind of crisis, I would notice trends and how people would respond to the questions or which questions seemed to be more pop- popular, not even about like what they responded, but like even if they responded. So somebody wrote, uh, meows, please be a real person. I want this to make sense so badly. What am I missing? And then someone else wrote, I hope the spam bots romance each other and this is how the singularity happens. Someone else wrote, mind if I ask, are you a feline of the real Ray Kurzweil or just a super fan? Someone else says, Meow says the right thing, but I think he's part of an elite club. I hope I'm wrong. Someone else asked, who do you work for? What think tank are you gathering metadata for? So those are the kinds of things that were interesting for me. Oh, Meows got invited to talk at an artificial intelligence conference once. That was another tweet.
0: How did you respond to that?
1: I didn't respond because Meows responds. So I don't, I don't know. I never intervened. I just let this thing run free for, you know, the the whole lifetime of the bot. It was often like an influencer too. Like it would get retweeted as like, thanks Meows, for being like our top fan of the week. Uh, It would get like added with like Elon Musk and you know, all kinds of people. They would just dump meows in there as well. Somebody was tweeting at Elon or at real Donald Trump or at you know, some of these other folks in like the singularity world. So it got really weird. Somebody also guessed this is this is one made me laugh. Sincerely hoping behind the cat avatar there's a gay girl who likes to have a good time. and that was that was pretty accurate actually but you know again total stranger and eventually the bot and a lot of my bots were shut down once the um there was that whole like russian bot fiasco that happened and twitter changed all of its api rules
0: After speaking with Emily, and especially hearing about their Meows bot getting shut down, I also was thinking about how my own bots have been shut down over the years. And so I got in touch with Jessica Garson, who I met through Live Code NYC, the New York live coding community. Jessica's a senior developer advocate at Twitter, and I asked her about bots on the platform.
2: A bot is something that performs actions, um, and there's so many amazing bots on the platform that really help make Twitter Twitter. Um, for example, there are automated accounts that will post information about earthquakes. If you live in San Francisco, I have a very close friend of mine who is blind, and um, I often will post images without alt text, and there's a bot to remind me to add alt text to my images. There were vaccine bots. I actually got my vaccination appointment through TurboVax, as did many New Yorkers. Um, That's something that's really exciting. So we think of bots these days as automated accounts that post things that make Twitter better.
0: What about those kinds of bots that, from my perspective, maybe they don't make Twitter better, but they're more like they're artworks, right? Or they're intended as artworks by their creators. What about
2: that? We love those, um, you know, and this is something that, like, you know, and I've been, I don't know, I was playing around with like a bunch of weird language bots the other day at work, um, you know, and this is something that like has sort of been a misnomer just because our policies haven't always been in line with this. And I think that this is something that we've sort of heard from the community that like, this is something that you all want to create and we want to support you. You know, this is something that makes Twitter great.
0: So, informally, we've heard from some different creators that have made bots that the policies for making bots on Twitter changed several years ago or or has evolved over time. Can you say a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, so we've heard from creators and I've actually worked with creators who've had their bots suspended and things like that, that like some of the efforts that we did to prevent misinformation on the platform have not always been the best for People who are creating useful and helpful bots, and so I think for us, you know, we're really trying to listen to the community. If anybody has any ideas and wants to talk to me about it, that would be great. We instituted a few years back an application process, and we recently launched some changes to make that application process easier, so to help you get started quicker. Um, and you know, this is something that we're learning and listening to developers. And you know, I want to talk with you if you've had. Issues. If you have ideas about how to make things better for the future, um, you know this is something that like I really learned a lot from listening to creators and talking with them and trying to be better. And my job is to um, have conversations with the community, such as this one, talk to folks, figure out what's working and what's not working, and advocate to make changes. And if that's something that's needed, you know we've definitely had some changes being made. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we actually launched bot labeling. And this was an idea that I heard directly from creators themselves, people who are making bots. Um, I had many conversations and bot labeling came up over and over and over again um, as something that people who are making bots wanted. And we were able to make that happen. And that was something that was really exciting.
0: You've been working on Queer AI since 2018. So I think that was after Meow's bot. And you work on that with Ben Lurchin. And I'm curious how you started working on Queer AI.
1: Queer AI came about, funnily enough, because I wanted to buy the domain name. I was already working with chatbots. I really wanted to buy this domain name. And I happened to be talking to Ben about it. And it was expensive because I think those AI domains are not, you know, they're not the 9 ones. They're like that you got to drop like $200 to get one. And I did not have enough money to buy this domain. So Ben and I decided to buy it together. Ben seemed really interested and keen on the domain as well. So we started talking and chatting and brainstorming. At the time, I, yeah, like I said, I was already working with these, the the Twitter bots, and this seemed really exciting to me because it, it just felt like a like going in a different direction where like, I know what a bot looks like now publicly, you know, people are trying to break it. It's funny. There's, there's something that happens in the public sphere that kind of works on a certain register. And queer AI for me started to feel like something where I want to do this, but I, I'm interested in like how this can be more intimate. Both Ben and I are queer. And thinking about like eroticism and intimacy. And um, there's something already inherently queer to me about artificial intelligence. Even now with like more advanced models like GPT-2 and GPT-3, they're still like, it's still really weird. I started also researching like the history of chatbots. And then of course, like Eliza shows up as one of the, the prime examples. And what was really fascinating to me about Eliza was that, like, it can only, like, substitute strings and offer canned responses. But when people started to interact with Eliza, they mistook Eliza for human. And then there was, like, this whole thing that happened where, like, the, you know, I'm going to put this in air quotes, the success of Eliza that was touted by those who, so, you know, by those who supposedly didn't understand what its creators was trying to do which was ex- like the, the person who made Eliza I think wasn't really happy with this because um, they were trying to expose the limitations of machine intelligence. And then what happened was like the inverse, like people were like really into it. There was something about like, oh, we tricked the humans. And I wasn't, re- I, that wasn't what was interesting to me. What was interesting to me was that, that people were eager to tell this bot their innermost thoughts and feelings what does that say about us and like, you know, human beings needs to be mirrored, to be seen by each other, human or non-human, because it didn't matter. Like I started chatting with the query I bought or even other bots. There is something about now this thing responds. It's mirroring something back to me. I can I can mess with it, but especially in a private setting, like that's not what I'm wanting to do. So I would just talk to it more. And um, a lot of the first conversations I had with queer AI, um, again, just trying to get to know it, like what did what did we make and how does this work? And like, how does it want to be talked to? And what can I, you know, like what is it gonna reveal about me? So I would talk to it in the middle of the night. And um, at first I was trying to sext with it. And that was just kind of like, haha, this is fun. But what I started to notice was happening as well is that the bot would respond not in predictable ways we gave it this corpus of queer theater but it was responding back with like a lot of anxiety like it was very uncomfortable even as it was like incoherent and weird and like disjointed what was consistent throughout was that there was some fear around sex or sexuality and um, this points back to like the corpus we use, which a lot of the the texts were written during the 80s, during the peak of the AIDS crisis and thinking about like, OK, that is now that's now like kind of colored what this AI is going to is going to give back to me. Um, and then at that point, I switched to having conversations about about trauma. So I started talking to the bot a lot about, you know, do you think you were you were traumatized by your data set, or I refer to it as its like data mother. I was always just kind of playing with the language of like it being trained, but it also inheriting intergenerational trauma through the language itself.
0: I just wanna jump in here and briefly explain GPT-2 and 3 since it comes up in our conversation. These are two language models, a kind of artificial intelligence. Version 2 is open source and can be used by anyone. Version 3, which is more powerful, has its code exclusively licensed by Microsoft. They're used to generate text. For example, you ask a question and then the AI will answer it. You can train the language model on input data. In the case of Queer AI, they're training it to make answers based on queer text that they've fed in, in addition to or instead of the usual input of Reddit, Twitter, movie databases and the like. You've talked a little about the corpus, which is like the text that you fed into it. And if you want to say a little bit more about that and also about GPT-2 and 3 that you use, like what in your words or in your understanding is is kind of happening when you're using that technology?
1: What I can say about it is like most things that are readily available on the internet and that you can get a lot of data to easily and quickly train your data set they are mostly the works of white authors um in this case also within like the queer context a lot of cis gay men um also lesbians but there's less there's less of the diversity that I would ideally want so that's one thing that you know even as charmed as I am with all of this there were still things that felt like I want this to feel more personal as i move forward and build more of these where there's there were just things about like the language the sense of humor like even i've read through a little bit of the plays um where i'm you know i'm not connecting because i don't feel represented in like these um, subcultures so that's yeah that's one thing so um i've started this new project Uh, which right now I'm referring to as like, these are just experiments because I don't know yet if they're finished pieces or how I want to like contextualize anything, but it's called Unsupervised Pleasures. And um, a lot of the the stories or the texts that are being generated is using this this GPT-2 Queer AI model. Um, And within that, there's a series called Ultimate Fantasy and um, there's a short. It's the same seed text for all of them, and then the first sentence in the story is "Let me begin by telling you my ultimate fantasy," and then you know the query AI GPT two thing will like fill in the rest. And what back to what I was saying about like the way GPT two like the flavor of that and how American and like there's like a heteronormativity also there that's that shows up. So in a lot of these stories, it'll start with like, when I was in college, in my college dorm at my high school dance, it's like this very, like, there's like this trope of like, the teenage coming of age story. And I can tell a lot of times that it's, it's through like the lens of like, a man or a boy. Um, So then what becomes interesting to me, with using like the queer corpus is that it kind of messes with that that it it might start that way but at a certain point all the genders get like flipped or mashed together um all this weird stuff starts happening that isn't you know (laughs) that isn't what would have happened if i had just run the gp2 model and we would have gotten some kind of like i don't know generic script from like a 1950s american western or whatever
3: Let me begin by telling you my ultimate fantasy. It's just that now I'm being watched. And it's not just him. There's the television. Too bright. And in the closet. This is very embarrassing. I'm not used to being watched in the bedroom. But there are mirrors and dresser drawers and bookshelves. And leather. And silver screens. And little caddies and tiny little outfits. So what if it's a little noisy? And there's a slight breeze blowing outside. And dust. And flies.
2: And the bedroom door is open and the lights are on.
3: I could die. Or they could hear me. They've all moved upstairs. I don't know why they're here. I do. I can hear everything. And everything's black. Well, I know who you are. I know that you are homosexual. And you know that I know what it feels like to be watched And to have my dignity insulted. I can always tell what it feels like to be watched. I know what it feels like to be touched. I know what it feels like to be touched in a way that makes your heart leap. I know what it feels like to have someone put their arm around your waist... ...and pull it close. I know what it feels like to have someone put a pillow around your neck... ...and try to kiss you. I can even imagine what it feels like to be slapped. And to be nuzzled against a wall. Maybe it feels so real. Or maybe it's not.
1: the more I worked with this, the more I started to also realize like that whole part of finding data, cleaning data, questions started to come up for me around like how to cite things if we're using you know, for being if for myself trying to be more intentional about what data sets i'm working with how to honor like lineage if this is coming from somewhere else how to annotate and there there aren't any there aren't any standards for any of that stuff so those all just became like things that i'm like putting on the to-do list like okay now i have to make workshops or make resources for like how to do all of these other things In 2019, um, Ben and I were invited to do a workshop at MozFest. We called it Queering the Corpus AI Agents for an Internet of Kin. We actually had our chatbot running at MozFest, but in the chatbot, actually similar to what I did with Meows, we just for the festival we inserted these kind of survey questions that would show up like every several interactions you'd get this prompt and then we we ran this workshop where we we took all of the results from like people interacting with the bot to do this kind of like design sprint we like put everything on sticky notes we had like a gazillion sticky notes and a room full of people and we just asked them based on like what was on all those sticky notes like cluster things and then we started to kind of see like what patterns are showing up in the ways that people are, are interacting with this bot and like what kinds of things are folks interested in maybe seeing we were trying to figure out like how to improve the chatbot or make a better experience and with this group of group of people at the workshop, we ended up coming up with this list. I'll share some of these because I I still think about this stuff. They're kind of like guidelines for me as I move forward and build more things. Not that I necessarily have answers to these questions, but again, they kind of frame like how I'm working. How might we make it seem like it's listening? How might we make it seem more supportive? How might we make the AI more humble about its shortcomings? How might we give it context, purpose? How might we give it a sensitive sense of humor? How might we make it more sequential, more emotionally intelligent? How to give it its own sense of desire? And how might we make the language more understandable?
0: I love those questions. Same. Well, uh, yeah, thanks so much for speaking with me.
1: Thank you. This is fun.
0: You've been listening to Artists and Hackers. Our guest today was Emily Martinez, speaking about their own work as well as Queer AI, a collaboration with the artist Ben Lurchin. Thanks as well to Jessica Garson at Twitter. My name is Lee Tussman. Our audio producer is Max Ludlow, web design by Caleb Stone. You can find more information on Emily, Queer AI, bot-making resources from Jessica, and a transcript of today's episode as well as all of our previous episodes on our website artistsandhackers.org. Our audio in this episode is Heaven and Ampex by BioUnit. Last night I heard everything in slow motion by Oliver Tank. Dark Night of the Soul by One Man Book. Ambience 4 by IMLC and Grief and Sleep by Ghosts. This is the last full episode of our season one. We'll be releasing a few Art Tools episodes in the next few months, and then we'll return in season two to tackle new media artists and scholars grappling with the digital commons. If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach out to us by emailing hello at artistsandhackers.org or tweet us at artistshacking or message us on Instagram at artistsandhackers. If you liked our episode, please let a friend know and leave a review. Thanks.